in um, in 1719, the Qing Dynasty mapped this region and identified this peak. And in 1802, the British began a great trigonometric survey of this area. And in 1856, a surveyor named Andrew Waugh, after years of measurement and careful calculations, it was very difficult, he determined that at the time this peak was called Peak 15, was 8,840 meters high. And then in 1865, the Royal Geographical Society, ignoring the local names, of course, for these places, as they were wont to do in that day and age, uh, named this peak Mount Everest, which is what you saw there, the highest mountain on earth. Then, of course, comes the, uh, the people who like to climb these things, and they tried to figure out how they were going to climb it because it's there, which is the classic reason for anybody to climb a mountain, and that has, uh, has become sort of the standard answer when why do you do something? Well, because it's there. So this was in, in 1865 when this uh, Mount Everest was named and was really recognized as the highest mountain on earth. In 1885, so 20 years later, they started to talk about how they could actually climb this mountain. And uh, it's difficult enough to climb it today, but you can imagine in 1885 with the kind of technology that they had, um, but they, were, they knew it was there, they knew it was the highest mountain, and they had to climb it because it's there. So it took an, another 40 years or so. In 1921, um, a reconnaissance trip to try and plan a mission to go and climb Mount Everest, reached 7,005 meters, so still well over 1,500 meters from the peak. And they saw a likely route to the top, but they weren't equipped for such a climb, so they turned back and they said, well, we seem to have found a way to go get there, and now we need to figure out how do we actually do it. So that was 1921. In 1922... So just one year later, a British expedition equipped with oxygen, which they needed for climbing at that altitude, reached 8,320 meters, just 500 meters short of the summit. Almost, but not quite there. Almost, but not quite there. In 1924, uh, just two years later, two men made it to 8,550 meters, just 290 meters short of the summit of the tallest mountain on earth, almost, but not quite. They didn't quite get there. Again, in 1924, two more British men set out using the experience that they had gained and using the information they had, and they attempted to summit. They set out that day with the goal that they were going to reach the summit. We don't know whether they made it or not because they died on the mountain and their bodies weren't recovered until 1979, almost 50, or more than 50 years later. So we're not sure. It's possible they made it, but we don't know because just, uh, uh, just, uh, just that same year, they were, some people had got to within 200 meter, 290 meters of the summit. So perhaps they got there, but we don't know for sure. Almost, but not quite. Many more attempts were made in the subsequent years. In 1952, two men, Raymond Lambert and Tenzing Norgay, reached 8,595 8, meters. Now they're just 253 meters short of the summit. Almost, but not quite. Almost, but not quite. 
On the 26th of May, 1953, and if any of you are historians, you'll know where we're going here. Uh, two men, as part of a British expedition, got within 100 meters of the summit and had to turn back because of equipment problems. Almost, but not quite. And then finally, you know the end of the story. On the 29th of May, 1953, at 11.30 a.m., uh, Tenzing Norgay and Edmund Hillary finally reached the summit. After so many times of almost, but not quite, they finally reached. But it's not just in, in mountain climbing that we can think of almost, but not quite, but also in spiritual issues. We can also see that idea of almost, but not quite. And as I, was, uh, as I was reading in John chapter 10, verses 22 to, to 42, I was thinking that the Jews that we read about in that passage are there spiritually almost, but not quite. Many, much like the, the mountaineers who tried to reach the summit of Everest and got very close and on a percentage-wise got 95, 96, 97% of the way there, but almost, but not quite getting there. And I think we see a little bit of that in John chapter 10, verses 22 to 42. So let's take a look at that this morning. And the, the Apostle John records for us these words. He says, Then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter. And Jesus was in the temple courts walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews who were there gathered around Him saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice, I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus said, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I have said, You are gods. If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and Scripture cannot be set aside, what about the one whom the Father set apart as His very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy? Because I said, I am God's Son. Do not believe me unless I do the works of my Father. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Again, they tried to seize Him, but He escaped their grasp. Then Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days. There He stayed, and many people came to Him. They said, though John never performed a sign, all that John said about this man was true. And in that place, many believed in Jesus. We have a passage here where the Jews are struggling to understand who Jesus is. They want a clear answer. And they want to know who this one is and what actually does he believe about himself. And so let's take a few minutes and look closely at what they have to say and this whole interaction between Jesus and the Jews. 
So here we have in verse 22 to 24 and sort of an introduction to the story. And it moves us on from where we've been looking in John chapter 10. And it seems that uh, John is conveying some sense of movement of time here. Then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter. So uh, we don't know exactly what, when the time was of the accounts that were just previous to this. But it seems for John to mention it, it seems there must have been some time had passed since the events of verse 21 that uh, we, we looked at a, a couple weeks ago. There was a reference to a feast, and it being winter tells us that John is moving the story along in terms of the time that's passed. And so there's this feast of dedication. The feast of dedication is not an Old Testament feast. You won't find that one mentioned anywhere in the Old Testament, but it was one that was instituted in the winter of... 165 B.C. by a man by the name of Judas Maccabeus. And uh, those of you who might be a little bit familiar with what we call the Apocryphal uh, Bible or the Apocrypha will find a couple books uh, that he wrote, uh, First and Second Maccabees. And this year, this Feast of Dedication starts on December 12th, so this is timely. If any of you want to go and celebrate the Feast of Dedication, you're in time to still get your uh, tickets and head off to... Uh, to Israel to celebrate this feast. But this feast of dedication was a feast to rededicate the temple. So at a point in Jewish history, they had been conquered. Uh, they, they, had, uh, they had been conquered by uh, Julius Caesar and then those who had came after him continued to rule over the nation of Israel. And they had faced increasing persecution until one fellow by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes uh, number four, the fourth, he ordered uh, the slaughtering of a pig on the altar. And of course, to the Jews, that was the greatest desecration you can imagine to the temple, where they weren't even allowed to, to eat the, the meat of that pig. And then this, this uh, ruler comes in and slaughters one of these uh, unclean animals on the altar that's dedicated to God. And he had done that in 168. BC. And in the subsequent, in the, in the three years in between that, the Jews had risen up and had, had rebelled against his authority and had reclaimed uh, their uh, sovereign rule over their nation. That didn't last uh, very long, only about a hundred years before they were conquered again. But one of the things they needed to do was to uh, rededicate the temple to God, to cleanse the temple and then rededicate it to God. So here they are. Uh, at, the, at that time of year of the festival to remember uh, that event and for this time, for Jesus' time, it was about 170 years earlier to remember that rededication of the temple to God. It was also symbolic of the Jews remembering that time when they threw off an oppressive regime in their history. And so this is the, 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 the setting for it. It's, it's, a, it's a time of remembering. It's a time of uh, reminding themselves of when they became uh, free. And at this point, of course, they know we're no longer free. The Romans came in and took over. And so at the time this is written, and at the time this is happening, they're celebrating this festival, but they are under Roman rule at this point. And so the Jews are gathered there for this festival. And they come to Jesus and they ask Him quite simply, how long will you keep us waiting? 
how long are you going to uh, string us along here? Tell us. Just tell us plainly. Are you the Messiah? They have one question for Jesus, and it's a really important one. They want to know. Because if He really is the Messiah, then that brings all sorts of uh, implications for how they live their life, what they worship, and what's going to happen. And so they want to know, plain and clear, Jesus, are You the Messiah? And so at this point in this festival, they approach Him and they want to know. And they want Him to say uh, straight up, are You the Messiah? He goes on and He gives them this answer. He does give them an answer, but uh, not quite the answer that they're looking for. Uh, not right at the start anyway. He, he says, first of all, I did tell you. I told you who I was. Uh, and He says, I... I did these things. Look at what I did. And you'll be able to tell who I am by looking at the the things that I've done. Who else has done the sorts of things that I've done? So he did all kinds of things, uh, even up, up to this point. And even in just looking in the Gospel of John, we see a record of the things he did. He changed water into wine in John chapter 2 at the wedding in Cana. And he did it. It says he did it. Uh, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which He revealed His glory. So His glory was revealed at that point, even then in John chapter 2. When we look in earlier in the Gospel of John, we see John the Baptist speaking about Jesus. And he says all kinds of things about Jesus. And he points to Jesus. And he tells people, this is the One. This is the Lamb of God. This is the One we've been waiting for. And so we have the witness of John the Baptist. In John chapter 4, we read about how Jesus healed. In John chapter 5, in John chapter 9, we read about how Jesus heals. In John chapter 6, we read about Jesus feeding multitudes in a miraculous event there. Jesus walks on the water in John chapter 6. And so Jesus is is sort of pointing at all those things and and probably even more things that He did that aren't recorded for us here in the Gospels. And He's pointing and He's saying, look at my life. Look at the things I've done. Can anyone but the Messiah do those? That's what He's, that's what he's trying to say. That's what He's trying to communicate to the Jews here. That you need to simply look at my life and you'll be able to understand who I am. He says, the works I do in my Father's name testify about me. But it's not just His works. It's also His words. In John chapter 4, verses 25-26, to 26, uh, in the encounter that Jesus has with the woman at, woman at the well, uh, the woman says to Jesus, I know the Messiah called Christ is coming. When He comes, He will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the One speaking to you, I am He. So there, He clearly identifies Himself as the Messiah. And, it, and we read about the woman goes on. She doesn't just keep that a secret, but she goes on and she tells others in her village who about Jesus. So it wasn't that there was a little secret between the two of them. That was fairly public knowledge that Jesus had told this, the woman this. And so uh, the woman tells others about Jesus. In John chapter 5, uh, verse 18, Jesus says, Uh, or John records for us, for this reason they tried all the more to kill Him. Not only was He breaking the Sabbath, 
but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So the Jews had already uh, heard a little bit about Jesus talking about himself and who he was and that the fact, not hiding the fact that he was the Messiah, but it, he was, it was there. Also in, uh, in uh, John chapter 8, verse 19, then they asked him, where is your father? And Jesus says, you do not know me or my father. Jesus replied, if you knew me, you would know my father also. So knowing him, Jesus, is just like knowing God. And so he's making these claims as well. In John chapter 8, verse 58, uh, Jesus says, Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, Before Abraham was born, I am. And of course, he's referring back to the time of God encountering Moses. And Moses asked God who, I, who he is. Who, what is your name? And God says, I am who I am. And when Jesus says, Before Abraham was born, I am, the Jews would have clearly remembered what this encounter with God and Moses. And that he, they would have had no question that, God, that Jesus was saying, I am God. And you see by their reaction in verse 59, at this they picked up stones to stone Him, but Jesus hid Himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. So you can see from the reaction of the Jews that they knew exactly what Jesus was saying and their response was to stone Him. And yet they're asking... Are you really the Messiah? So, perhaps to this particular group that's with him on this day, uh, he hasn't explicitly stated that he is the Messiah. But they should have figured it out. There seems that there, there, there should have been enough information and Jesus had said enough at enough different points in time that they would have figured it out. Then Jesus goes on and He talks about His sheep. He says, you do not believe because you are not My sheep. My sheep listen to My voice. I know them and they follow Me. So Jesus' sheep would know Him. They would know His voice. They would know the things He says. They would follow Him. They would have some kind of response to what He is doing. And then He goes on and He says, once they're in My hand, nobody can take them out. And then He says, if they're in My hand, they're in My Father's hand. He he equates them. He says, no one can snatch them out of My hand. Verse 28. Then in verse 29, He says, My Father who has given them to Me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of My Father's hand. Are we in Jesus' hand? Are we in the Father's hand? The answer is, it's one and the same thing. And they would have seen that. They would have understood that. That Jesus is saying, if you're in My hand, you're in the Father's hand as well. You're in God's hand. It's the same thing. It doesn't make a difference whether I say you're in My hand or you're in God the Father's hand. It's all the same thing because we are uh, the same thing. We are one and the same. Think about this for a minute. The security that we have being in the hand of the Father who is the greatest of all. There is no one that can take us out of the Father's hand. Once we've made that decision to be a follower of Jesus, we are secure in His hand. Because that same hand of Jesus' hand is the Father's hand. And He says, no one is greater 
that my Father is the greatest of all and you are, whole, you are being held in His hand. And that should be words of tremendous comfort and reassurance to know that no matter what happens, we are in the Father's hand. But that isn't always how we feel. Sometimes we might feel like we're on kind of shaky ground. That we're not sure where we are. We're not sure where we're going or what's happening in life. We feel that life is just uh, sort of crumbling around us. We might feel like we're wandering alone and lost. And we wonder if anybody is with me. But, but that's, our, that's how we feel. There's nothing wrong with that. But, but underlying that, and foundational to those feelings, we also need to recognize, I am in my Father's hands. I am in God's hands. We're not there alone. We're not in that tough stuff in life of a loss of job or sicknesses or injuries or illnesses. Whether we're struggling at work or at home, at school, and feeling inadequate or incompetent in the job or the, the program we're in or whatever it is we're doing. We feel that things aren't going the way we want them to at home or in the workplace with our spouse or with our kids. Things aren't the way we want them to be with our friends and with our family. A million and one things are going wrong in our life and we stop and we say, God must have left me. But He has not. Being in the palm of His hand, safe and secure, doesn't mean that everything will be perfect. It just means that God is holding on to us and He'll never let us go. In Psalm 23, verse 4, it says, Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. For You are with me. Your rod and Your staff, they comfort me. These are, these are words of comfort. That God is with us no matter what we're going through. And it doesn't, uh, our, our relationship with God and our being in God's hand doesn't mean those uh, tough things in life disappear, but it means that God is there with us and walking us through those things. So we need to hold on to that truth that Jesus is conveying there uh, that we are in God's hands and we are secure there, no matter what obstacles we might be facing in life. Then Jesus gets closer to the point. He says His hand, His Father's hand, they seem to be one and the same thing. And then almost anticipating that question that might come, well, what are you saying? Are we in your hands or are we in God's hands? And He's he's almost anticipating that question and He gives the answer and He says, it doesn't matter. I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. This is a remarkable statement. And the Jews don't like this. They don't like that answer. Again, there's charges of blaspheming here. They pick up stones. They want to put Him to death. That's the usual end of a stoning as you get put to death. But Jesus wants to clarify something here. He stops them for a minute. And He wants to clarify something. And it's not clear exactly who he's clarifying it for. And maybe there's a number of people that he wants this, to hear this clarification. It's not, it's not for him. I don't think it's for him. He's not, uh, uh, he's not confused about what's going on here. Uh, but Jesus stops them in verse uh, 32. He, says, he, he asks them a question. He says, I've shown you many good works from the Father. 
For which of these do you stone me? So Jesus is asking a very good question. He's saying, he's really asking, why exactly are you stoning me? Now I think Jesus himself knows the answer. But he wants them to think about, okay, you're about to do something here. I want you to be clear. So I'm going to ask this question just so you are clear in your own mind exactly why you're doing this. And the Jews respond, it's not because of miracles, uh, but the claim that He is God. So they've, they've, this question has clarified for them in their own minds exactly why they're stoning Him. And it clarifies for the readers who came after as well. This is exactly why Jesus was being stoned. Because He was saying He was God. There was no misunderstanding about it. It wasn't because of the things He was doing, but because of that answer to that question, are you the Messiah? And He says, yes, I am. And so they turn and want to stone Him. Then Jesus walks through some logic here in verses 34-39. to And He says, the Jews are gods in a sense there as you read that passage that they are representatives of God. They're not gods themselves, but they are representatives. The Word of God came to them. The Scriptures came to them. And so, in that way, as they speak the words of the Scriptures, they are speaking the words of God. And he says the Scriptures can't be broken. Uh, There's nothing untrue about them. Despite the problems that Jesus and the Jews may have had and the disagreements and misunderstandings they may have had, they both held a high view of Scripture. That Scripture is reliable and true. And it came from God. And so they can at least agree on that point when Jesus says Scripture cannot be set aside or Scripture cannot be broken. But then He says the Father set Him apart and sent One into the world. And that's Jesus. And then they've seen the works that He has done. They've heard the statements as He has made. But they don't believe. There's a gap there. They are almost, but not quite, followers of Jesus. They're almost, but not quite there. They know the stories. They've seen what Jesus has done. They've heard Him speak. They've heard Him in person. They've questioned Him uh, when He's there in person and heard the answers to their questions, but they still don't believe. They have all this knowledge, all this experience of Jesus, but they don't believe. They're almost but not quite there. Jesus uh, is the is sort of the one uh, that's causing them to stop and think. But they don't believe. They don't believe. Jesus says back in verse 26, but you do not believe. So He knows that even though they know all this stuff, they don't believe. And then the story goes on. They... Uh, Jesus ends up leaving as they try and seize Him. As they try and grab Him, He ends up leaving and going off to where John the Baptist had been doing His ministry. And, and this, these last three verses here stand as a contrast to all the struggles and all the misunderstandings, all the problems that He has getting the Jews to understand. And He points, now John, uh, the writer John points, to where Jesus goes back to where John the Baptist was. John the Baptist had prepared the soil. He had been there. He had been baptizing and teaching. Jesus attracts the people. Jesus speaks to the people. And they could see Him in the flesh. They could see Him. They could touch Him. They could hear Him speak. And when people came and 
they encountered Jesus. They recalled what John the Baptist had taught them about the Messiah. And John the Baptist was very clear he was not the Messiah. Instead, he was pointing to Jesus. And he said, he even said to, when he saw Jesus, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who comes and takes away the sins of the world. John the Baptist is one of my favorite characters in the Bible. And when he, uh, when, when Jesus comes on the scene, John recognizes that his work is finished. And he says in John uh, chapter 3, verse 30, he says, He must increase, I must decrease. And so Jesus goes to this area where John had been teaching and He starts teaching and people believe. In Jesus, when He's there in the flesh, the people could see all that John had been teaching them. They didn't need miracles from John. They didn't need miracles from Jesus. They simply looked, listened, heard, and could see that John. this was the one that John was teaching them about. They accepted John's testimony as a witness to Jesus. They evaluated Jesus against that testimony and many believed that He was the Messiah. The Jews had all this knowledge of Jesus, but they had no room in their heart for Him. They didn't believe. They didn't believe. They were almost there because they knew so much, but they didn't believe. So as I think about this passage, there's really two questions that come to my mind when I reflect on what is, what is this passage all about. The first is, do we believe? Do you believe? Or are we a bit like the Jews? We know what uh, John the Baptist said. We know, that, uh, we know what Jesus said. We know what Jesus did. We know what the Scriptures say. We know all that. We can spend our days filling our, our heads with knowledge, but do we believe? Have we taken that step? Or are we almost there, but not quite? Are we almost there because we're full of knowledge, but we haven't taken that step of really believing? Because we have a testimony here in John chapter 10 of the Jews who knew far more than we would, who had seen Jesus in person, who had heard Him, who was they were able to actually question Him in person. Get His responses. They knew all of that. But they didn't believe. They wanted to kill Him. Are we at that point of knowing but not believing? I went through a time in my life when I was at that point. Before I came to Christ, before I took that step and really believed, I went through about a year of searching, of of asking those sorts of questions. What is the meaning of life? What's going on? And what's this Jesus all about? So I went through a period where I was learning. We were going to church. We were reading our Bibles. And I was learning. And I learned all this stuff. I didn't know everything, but I certainly learned a lot in that time. And so I learned. I learned who Jesus was. I learned what the Bible said He did. I learned what the Bible taught about why He did it, why He came and lived on earth, why He had to die on the cross for our sins. I knew all of that. If you sat and asked me, I, I, I might not have given you all the correct theological words, but I could have told you all of the answers to the questions. I probably could have gone through baptismal class and answered all the questions correctly because I knew, but I didn't believe. And I came... One day as I was reading the Bible, 
I came to this verse. It's Luke chapter 11, verse 23. And Jesus is speaking here. And He says, Whoever is not with Me is against Me. And whoever does not gather with Me scatters. Whoever is not with Me is against Me. I came to that verse and I stopped. And I said, where am I? Am I with Jesus? Or am I against Him? And as I thought about it, it's like, do I believe this stuff? Or do I not? I knew a whole bunch, but did I believe? I was almost there. And like I say, if you asked me, if you just came and asked me, I probably could have given you enough answers that you would have said he's a Christian, but I wasn't there because I didn't believe. I just knew. I was almost, but not quite. I was, in my mind, I suppose I was sitting on the fence, but the fence is not a safe place to sit because as someone uh, quipped to me later when I was relayed the story, he said the fence is in Satan's territory. There's no sitting on the fence. And that's what Jesus is saying. You're either with me or against me. There's no middle ground. There's no Switzerland in this debate. There's no neutral territory you can rest in. You're either for me or against me. I wrestled with this for probably a couple of weeks. Do I believe or not? You know the answer to that, of course. I came to the point that the pastor came to our house that, that day a couple of weeks later after I'd been wrestling with this and he didn't know I was wrestling with this question. He came over for a visit. He shared the Gospel with me one more time. And at the end of the presentation, when he said, do you believe? Do you want to receive Christ as your Savior? I could not bring myself to say no one more time. And I said, yes, I believe. But that can be very hard to move from their head to your heart then. From knowing to believing. There's Luke 11.23. From knowing to believing. We, can, we think we can know Jesus, the Bible, so well, we, but we don't believe. Maybe we're even a Sunday school teacher or even a pastor full of knowledge about Jesus, but we don't believe. And so that's one question. Do we believe? The second question is, if you believe, are you following? One of the things that we hear, and one of the, the, the sort of quotes that you, you come across in, uh, in Christian writings sometimes is, one of the things we, that, that we hear sometimes is that the longest distance uh, in the world is the 18 inches or so from your head to your heart where those things you know have to translate to your heart. But Archbishop Robert Carlson has a different and I think a particularly challenging take on that thing, on that idea. And he says, people are fond of saying that the longest distance in the world is the 18 inches between the head and the heart. Then he gets very pointed. And he says, but he goes on to add here, he says, but to stop there is to miss one of the major challenges of today's world. The issue is not so much the interior gap between the mind and the heart as it is about the equally large gap between the heart and the lips. Between faith as an interior reality and the visible expression of faith as an exterior reality, which many think is optional. Ouch. 
Then he goes on and he says, they are perfectly happy to wear the colors of their football team in the public square, but hesitant to wear the colors of faith in the public square. Do we follow Jesus? It's hard. That's what he's saying here. It's hard to get from your head to your heart, but it's even harder to get it to your, he says, to your lips or to your hands, to where you're actually doing something. You can say you believe, but is it transforming and really changing how you live? Jesus says to His sheep, they know Him and they follow Him. Do I follow Him? Do you follow Him? Do we follow Him? What does it look like to follow Jesus? One thing you, we can often point to is Colossians chapter 3, verse 23. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for your human masters. Following Jesus means doing whatever you do for the glory of God. I've known Christians from all kinds of walks of life. And not all of them see what they are doing on a day-to-day basis, in the workplace, in school, at home, as something that they're doing for the Lord. Some do. Some say whatever. Some take this to heart and say, whatever I'm doing, I'm doing it. I'm serving God no matter what I'm doing. If I'm uh, shoveling a, pie, uh, 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 a hole, if I'm digging a hole, if I'm digging a trench, if I'm teaching a class, if I'm in a hospital healing the sick, whatever I'm doing, I, I know I'm doing this in some way I'm serving the Lord. But there's some people who I know have said, you know, I go to work and then I do ministry. I go to work and then I come home and I serve God in the church. And it's like, no. Whatever you do, you can be serving God. We need to think of that. That whatever we're doing, we're, we, we are serving God. If we're, if we're really following Jesus, we will see that. That whatever we do, we do it uh, in a way that we serve God. Psalm 63, verse 8 uh, says in the, in the Old King James, it, it says it nicely, My soul followeth hard after Thee, after God, and then Thy right hand upholdeth Me. I'll put it in a modern translation. It also has, it, it changed a little bit, but it says, I cling to You. Your right hand upholds me. My soul follows hard after God. Can we say that? Or do we need to make that decision today too? To follow hard after God. To keep going hard after Him. I've met some people who follow hard after God. And it can look very different in different situations. A friend of mine, Steve, when he was about 9 or 10, he grew up in a Christian home and when he was about nine or ten, uh, a medical missionary came to his home and uh, was visiting at their church for the weekend and came and they had a, a meal at, at home and shared about medical missions. And Steve, when he was nine or ten years old, said, that's what God wants me to do with my life. And from that point on, his whole life was driven through high school to achieve the results he needed to get into the right programs at university in the first years of university to get the results he needed to go into medical school because he knew from grade from age 9 or 10 years old that this is what God wanted me to do and I'm following hard after him and Steve never let that go he ended up working in Zambia with us for a number of years and he developed MS and when it got too bad for him to stay in the warmer climates he continued to serve God 
He moved to a higher elevation where it was cooler and easier to manage his MS. But it didn't let him, it didn't stop him. And even to this day, he is serving God there. He is following hard after God and his whole life has been a testimony of it. But it doesn't need to be just uh, going off and doing something like that. Uh, medical missions. I had a friend at that church in Toronto. His name was uh, Gord. And he, was, he had been retired for a number of years when I first met him 20 years ago or so. And Gord was a very successful, very wealthy businessman. But he served in the church. And he didn't put himself up front. He never, I, I, I can't ever remember seeing him up on the platform making an announcement. But he served tirelessly. He was always there with a word of wisdom and a word of advice and using his experience. And he, he came alongside me a number of times and helped me and just gave me that word of encouragement and a word of advice and asked hard questions sometimes too. And Gord did a couple of things that really stand out in my mind. The first time I went to preach at that church, he took me aside for a minute and he said, you know, just so you know, there's four or five people out here every Sunday morning praying for you as you're speaking. So just take encouragement. Be assured of that. And he didn't, he didn't make it a big thing in the bulletin, you know, the, 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 the preaching prayer team or anything. I'm not even sure, other than him, I'm not sure who those other people were. I, have an, I could take a guess, but I'm not sure. But he just wanted to, to be there, to reassure and to help. The other thing Gord did, he was never on an usher team, but he knew everybody in the church. And was, when there was a visitor, as soon as the service was over, he made a, a, a beeline to that visitor and introduced himself and got their details. And he just served that way behind the scenes, but he was following hard after God and he worked hard as a businessman and built up that wealth and was living on that, but he was serving hard faithfully in the church, never looking for a position. Following hard after God can look very different in many different, in, in, can look very different to us. Um, and di- we can do that in different ways. So those are the two questions. Do we believe? And if we believe, are we really following God? We can ask God to give us the grace to make that decision to believe and to follow hard after Him. And we are not to be ones who are almost, but not quite. God, help us to cross over, to move from death to life, from darkness to light. And so as we think about these two questions, do you believe? And if you believe, do you follow? are we following hard after God? We come to the Lord's table that's set before us here. Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 28, that He gives us eternal life and He does that because He loves us and He gives His life for us. And so today as we come, as if we come to the Lord's table and we celebrate the Lord's table here, We come to remember that Jesus has come to give us life. Jesus has come to encourage us, to help us, and to give us that eternal life through His blood that's shed on the cross. And this is what we come to remember today. The sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. His blood shed for us. His body broken for us. But we also do it to recall and to remember and to proclaim what Jesus has done 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the great passage where Paul passes on to us the, what he has learned from God, from Jesus. He says for 1 Corinthians 11.23, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night He was betrayed, took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is My body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. In the same way, after supper, He took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in My blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of Me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. That's what we're doing here today. It's part of following hard after God is participating in this remembrance of Him and proclaiming the Lord's death as we wait for Him to come. Those who have uh, taken that step of believing in Jesus and taken that, the further step of following Him and uh, being baptized are welcome to join with us. If you haven't, you can just sit and uh, let the elements pass by and reflect on all that Jesus has done for you. If we could have the ushers come forward as uh, Deacon Wigwan prays for the bread and the cup, please.